You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Quiet on the set. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Welcome, welcome everyone to Movie Night with Stiff. As always, I'm your host, Gabby. And first of all, I want to thank all of you for coming out to SIF 2023 this year. It was such a success. We could not have done it without you. If you listen to our programmer's episode in September, then you'll know that it's a labor of love for a whole team of people working year-round to put this festival together. And I know I speak for everyone at SIF when I say that it's incredibly rewarding to watch you all come together to enjoy yourselves at these screenings and at these special events, you know, watching filmmakers, first time or otherwise, walking red carpets and doing Q&As and participating in Industry Week. We do it all for you. So your enjoyment, your passion, that's what makes it all worthwhile. So thank you so, so much for coming out. We're already working away at the 25th anniversary edition of the festival, which you're definitely not going to want to miss. SIF 2024 goes from September 19th to September 29th, so mark your calendars because we can't wait to see you there. As a little treat for you all for being such a wonderful audience, this month's episode will feature none other than the legendary Canadian director, Adam Agoyan. He was the keynote speaker during Industry Week at SIF 2023. The following is an abridged version of our conversation with him, which delves into his 35 years in the film industry, his internationally renowned body of work, and a sneak peek into the process behind his latest film, Seven Veils. Uh, I'd like to first begin by thanking and introducing our moderators. Lee Carruthers and Charles Tepperman are associate professors of film studies at the University of Calgary and co-editors of a new collection of essays called Canadian Cinema in the New Millennium. Carruthers is also the author of Doing Time, Temporality, Hermeneutics, and Contemporary Cinema. Her recent research examines the late style of contemporary directors. Tepperman is author of Amateur Cinema, The Rise of North American Movie Making, and the director of the Amateur Movie Database Project. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lee Carruthers and Charles Tepperman. Thank you very much. It's really uh, a, a pleasure and, and a privilege to be here today. Uh, Adam McGoyan, uh, his body of work, which includes theater, music, and art installations, delves into issues of memory, displacement, and the impact of technology and media on modern life. While working in theater in his 20s, uh, he began making short films at the University of Toronto. He wrote his first feature film, Next of Kin, which premiered at the Toronto Film Festival in 1984. His early features, such as family viewing and speaking parts, were similarly presented at festivals around the world. Agoyan, in particular, has a long association with the Cannes Film Festival, with most of his features being presented in the official selection. Uh, so Exotica, The Sweet Hereafter, Felicia's Journey, Ararat, Where the Truth Lies, Adoration, and The Captive, uh, and you know, winning five major awards at this prestigious event. Uh, so too many awards to name. Um, but The Sweet Hereafter is widely regarded as the most acclaimed English-Canadian film ever made. And uh, his films have won 25 Genies, including three Best Film Awards. And we were thrilled to have uh, his latest film, Seven Veils, uh, at uh, the festival. And it screened last night. I know many of you saw it there. And, you know, I, Lee and I also just wanted to say from a personal perspective that we can't emphasize how, uh, enough how central Mr. Agoyan's films uh, were to our development, developing interest in, in film. And maybe this is the case for, for many of you here. Um, 
I, I still remember in high school the in the know friends uh, talking about this film called The Adjuster, uh, which was uh, at the Rep Theater. Um, and uh, when I saw, you know, Exotica during my first year as a, a film studies student at the University of Toronto, um, it was clear that something exciting was going on uh, here in Canada. Um, that we have a cinema too. And of course, Mr. Egoyan's stratospheric rise would continue with Oscar nominations and major festival prizes and many other awards. But we're so delighted that he's here in conversation with us today. So please join me in welcoming Adam Egoyan. So starting with... The, the day that we're, you know, sort of observing today, it is the National Day for, for Truth and Reconciliation. And I, I wanted to just start by asking if you could say a little bit about how you have seen Indigenous filmmaking in Canada uh, change or emerge over the course of, of your career. Well, I, the great news is that I've seen it begun to get made by Indigenous filmmakers. I think that my introduction uh, was by films dealing with indigenous issues that were made by by settlers and um, uh, and some of them were impressive but now in retrospect I don't know how I feel about films like uh, a dream dream speaker Claude Jutra made a film for the CBC and I heard the owl call my name and I you know I remember because I was raised on the west coast I remember Chief uh, Dan George being this really important figure but all always through uh, through, through films made by others. And so it really began to change with Atanajarat, I think for me, uh, obviously, but you know, like lately it's been like the film that really I found was extraordinary was um, the body of members from the world uh, broke open, the Elmaya tail feathers. And uh, we, we lost Jeff Barnaby, who was also a, a great indigenous filmmaker, but there's just a whole school now of, of filmmakers who get to tell their own story. So that's how I've seen it change. Um, so, so shifting a little bit here, um, when I teach a film theory course, we talk about what makes cinema definitive, what its essential qualities are. And one of the ways we approach that is by pulling it apart from theater. Um, and it's not because we think they don't belong together, but it clarifies cinema's sort of qualities and theater's experience if we, we discuss them separately. But it occurs to me that your work makes it necessary to see the kind of entanglement of those forms. And I wondered, you know, obviously related to the newest work, but it, it also seems to be a through line um, that conjoins your earliest creative efforts to the stuff you're doing now. I wonder if I could, you know, put you on the spot a little bit and ask you to, to, to talk us through um, how you understand cinema to be doing a thing and how you understand theater to be doing a thing and then, and then how you make them talk to each other and activate each other as you do so, so powerfully in Seven Veils. That's a great question. Um, yes, I do come from theater. I started doing uh, writing, directing plays at high school in Victoria, actually junior high school. Uh, there was a Victoria Drama Festival, and uh, I used to uh, get involved with that. Um, and I was kind of, uh, by the time I graduated from Mount Doug uh, School in Victoria, uh, senior secondary high school, um, uh, I... I had won the Victoria Drama Festival, and I had, and I actually made it to the BC 
festival. Um, but I felt that when I moved to Toronto, not to study drama, I studied international relations, but I got, I submitted a play to the U of T Dr Drama Society. I heard that there was a film club at U of T at Hart House. And I thought, okay, so they've rejected it as a play. I'll make it as a movie. And I actually submitted it to uh, the Hart House Film Board. And I shot it on a Bolex, hand-wound Bolex, kind of a version of the play they had rejected. Um, and that, and I, the moment I started shooting it, I went, oh, this is very cool, what the camera is doing. And the camera becomes like this other character. And it becomes like this person who is involved in the drama because they're watching what's happening. And that just seemed so thrilling. And, and I sort of developed it from there. Um, and there is this theatrical element in my films from the very beginning. And that is to say that in theater, we know it's fake. When we go into a theater, it just feels at first, okay, this is a bit odd. There, there's a stage, there are these actors. I know it's a construction, but if it's done very well, you begin to kind of project yourself into that space and you get more involved with it than you might otherwise, because you are invested. And I, I felt that it'd be interesting with films if you actually made that construct obvious to the viewer. Um, and it was also a way of rejecting this type of film that I'd been raised with, uh, uh, like what the, the National Film Board and kind of these films I'd seen, which were like uh, docudramas and trying to kind of say that this was actually happening. Uh, and cinema does that very effortlessly. And it, there's a great tradition of it, like now with the Dardan brothers and Mike Lee. And, you know, um, and we have certainly, there was this whole school in the, uh, uh, the National Film Board uh, where they were uh, making these um, dramas that were shot like documentaries. Um, and I respect that aspect, but I w it was never what I felt close to. I was much closer to these filmmakers. Like I was seeing uh, like uh, Bresson or uh, Bergman was really important because he's also coming from theater, Ingmar Bergman. Fassbinder is also coming from theater. Uh, these were filmmakers that I acknowledged and I understood what they were up to because they were using these theatrical principles that there was something about the performance style or the way it was shot that told you this wasn't necessarily reality. But, but if you got involved with the project of it, it, it be, begins to um, affect you in a different way. And then you, I saw films by Tarkovsky and I saw these, you know, these brilliant movies that were really pushing that, like uh, where you were aware of time, you're aware that things were... Um, Somehow there was an artifice to it, but that can at first pushes you away, but then it brings you closer to it. But you have to trust the filmmaker. You have to commit yourself to it. You can't just get up and leave after half an hour. So I begin to wonder sometimes whether or not that's just a product of the feature film where you are committed for an hour and a half in that space. And uh, where that takes you then is, really a journey that you make with, with, with the images that the filmmaker is presenting. 
Yeah. You know, for your work in particular, I think about somebody like Alan René, um, who is sort of the, the consummate um, formalist, stylist of cinema, definitively cinematic. Uh, but then in the sort of late stages of his, his career, begins collaborating with the English uh, playwright Alan Akeborn. Right. Um, and his, you know, the last few films are, are filmed plays, but they don't lose their cinematic quality, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's, it's different. It's lighter. It has a different sort of temperature. Right. Um, and you know, these are, these are things that people speak about in your work as well. The, the kind of cool, uh, visual stylist that particularly in the, in the early work is so strongly associated with the brand. Um, but there's always been this kind of theater energy running through it. I, I love the way you explain that. Thank you. Yeah, it is. That's an interesting term, theater energy. It's just this, it's a particular energy that happens when, uh, you are watching actors perform and you're aware that they, they are performing. Um, and there's a, and I, you're, you're right that Seven Veils takes it to an extreme because you're also watching actors then sing, or you're watching that act of singing, which is so um, unnatural, but, but becomes very uh, rooted in, in this form of human expression. So you are aware that these are human beings expressing feeling, um, and you're invited to engage with that. And you'll either be really moved or kind of distant from it. Like, and I understand both responses. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book about cinematic time. And, and it's basically, uh, as, as high end as that sounds, it's basically about the way cinema gives us an opportunity to experience time pleasurably uh, with anxiousness, uh, maybe in a kind of existential way. Um, so I, I would like, if you'll indulge it, um, for you to, to think through with us a little bit about moments in your films um, of acceleration or, or maybe ones where you felt, as you do for the beautiful opening of Seven Veils, that a kind of attenuated shot with a, with a, a sort of serpentine camera movement opening up the space. And that thing runs nearly two minutes, right? Like it's 90 seconds long. Um, what you're thinking about when you slow things down and what kind of experience you're hoping will be cultivated in that sense of suspension in time? Hmm, that's a great question. I, I mean, I think the probably the clearest experiment in that is a, a, a tiny film I shot in Armenia called Calendar. So Calendar... Um, I play uh, uh, begrudgingly because I really hate performing, uh, but I play a, a photographer who's got a commission to go to Armenia to shoot 12 churches uh, for a calendar. Now, uh, that's also a personal um, issue because when I was in Victoria, my only connection really with the Armenian community, uh, there was no Armenian community in Victoria. There was a tiny one in Vancouver at the time. But we would get these uh, calendars sent from the diocese in Montreal. So we'd, you know, I'd see these 12 uh, churches uh, that were always in these calendars. So I was now playing the person who was sent to Armenia to take these images. Um, and he goes with his girlfriend, played by my wife, Arsene Khanjan, and uh, she falls in love with this guide. And over the course of taking these 12 images, uh, I lose her to this other person. And I lose her to this other country, so I come back alone. Um, and it's a meditation on the time it took to take those 12 images, which might be two weeks in Armenia, um, traveling around the country. And then the year in which we see this character now um, 
dealing with the calendar he's made and dealing with the other things that have happened in his life. And the two events, that is to say the two-week period and the one-year period are intercut. And so there is that sense of time being sculpted uh, quite quite specifically in that movie, but in a very modest way. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not a big film, but it was an interesting experiment. And it actually opened the door to films like Exotica and uh, all the other films that began to become non-chronological. I have to say that the first experiment with this was, weirdly enough, a, a hockey movie. So I, for the CBC, made a film called Gross Misconduct. And when uh, Paul Gross, um, Alberta, um, like icon, Paul Gross, uh, when, when I first got the script, it was a really conventional um, sort of story about, about Spinner Spencer, um, uh, Brian Spencer, uh, who, um, so one of the things that happened in Brian Spencer's career uh, is that, you know, he ended up, I won't go in the story of it, except to say that he ended up uh, uh, having this really kind of arc through the NHL at the time, but ended up in in, uh, in Florida getting involved in the botched uh, drug crime and, and, and being, um, um, you know, he was, he was shot dead. Um, and, and what also happened in his life, which Paul touched on and Martin O'Malley's book made mention of in one page was his father, Roy Spencer in the, uh, in, in Burns Lake, BC, Burns Lake or was it Fort, Fort uh, no, it was Fort St. James actually. Sorry. So anyway, he actually, the day that his son first appeared on, on the, um, hockey night in Canada. He got an antenna, put it on his house, was so excited to watch the game. And the CBC decided not to broadcast the game in the Western part of the country. And this guy went completely ballistic. He actually drove hundred miles to Prince George, BC, held up the CBC local affiliate station and demanded that they play his son's game. And, uh, he ended up being shot dead by the RCMP. The RCMP ambushed the place and shot him dead. So I said to Paul, uh, wouldn't it be interesting if we actually show the entire arc of Brian Spencer's life from the time he's born to the time he dies being shot in Florida at the age of 38, and then show everything that happened in, Brian, in Roy Spencer's day, the day he ends up dying also by, by a gunshot back from the RCMP. So buying the antenna, putting it on his roof, finding out that, you know, so, so that the two events are intercut through the thing. So Paul just said, that's the most artsy, terrible idea possible. <laughs> but then miraculously, like about a month later, came up with this blueprint. And that actually ends up being the first time I actually worked with a non-chronological kind of order, 1992. The film's called Gross Misconduct. And so, uh, so that was an interesting sort of use of time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, circling back just for a moment to that, that opening that I was entranced by, um, uh, of Seven Veils, can you can you tell us a little bit about what you wanted to initiate there? Well, I mean, it, it casts a spell. Sure. And, I mean, it is Seven Veils, like immediately yeah. to start off, because you have, she's physically in this room. She's watching a projection uh, of someone who is portraying her uh, on this, uh, in this theatrical kind of projection. And then her physical presence creates a shadow which is formed within the image of the of the of this projected person who's playing her, and you know the relationships are all somehow um, held to question, and the 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 relative 
meaning of all that, you know, as it's introduced from this other shot in the empty theater. So yes, you're, you're plunged into it. Like I had a really interesting response where a, um, um, someone said, um, I'm glad you didn't take the route where the film starts off at a the birthday party for those of you who have seen the film it didn't it didn't start off with the birthday party of of the mother and then you didn't have like the best friend of amanda's character saying she's so excited that she's about to go and do this opera and that she wasn't in constant touch with the friend over the film describing what was happening i'm glad you didn't take that route because that would have been really conventional and I, I looked at this person, I went, that route didn't even occur to me. <laughs> and if it had, I might have explored it because it would have made the film maybe more accessible to people. Uh, but 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 I they were giving me a lot of credit for something that didn't even occur to me because I, I I was going, that would have been probably one way of actually telling the story. So you don't you don't need have the, the props master kind of explaining the story. You have the friend who's obsessed with Salome, who's an academic maybe, or kind of, you know, whatever it might be, there are other ways to tell the story that would be more conventional, but I'm never rejecting the conventional approach. Uh, honestly, I, if, if I had a commercial bone in my body, I, I probably would be in a different place right now. I, the, the, this is the way these stories come to me. So I, I've, I'm, I'm, um, I'm never, there's never a linear form or the, the formulaic way that I'm then rejecting. This is just the way. And so that image that you're talking about, which is incredibly dense, mm -hmm. I'm aware when I'm watching it now within the audience, it's a tall order to be plunged into this super dense, uh, like stew of, of, of images that are just piled on top of each other. Um, and that there would be a way where you start off with a birthday party scene at a house and everyone kind of like milling around and her excited to be leaving to get this job. But I'm just drawn to this other space because it's mysterious to me. I find it, I'm, I'm, I, I think it's what I'd be drawn into. Yeah. Because I do kind of resist these things where you feel, um, but it, if it's done sincerely, like that's the thing is that I honestly think that viewers are super smart and they can tell if something is insincere. So if you are pretending to do something because it's a formula uh, and you think it would work and you don't really are, if you're not genuinely excited by that, the audience will know and they'll just reject the movie. It just won't work. But if you really believe in those formulas, I mean, they're not formulas to you. They're, they're how you actually believe that story should be told. Then that can work as well. Right. So, you know, the funny story, I've told it before, and it's, again, I, I hate repeating myself, but it's just such a good story if you haven't heard it, was when I was nominated for the Academy Awards. There was this, this Academy, this nominee's luncheon, and, and James Cameron came over to me and he said, hey, fellow Canadian, we made the same movie. And I went like, what? what <laughs> when what, did what? that happen? <laughs> and, I, and I went like, what do you mean? He goes, think about it. Think about what happens in your movie. Think about what happens in mine. And I went, and I was going, uh, and he said, large metal object full of people crashes into ice. <laughs> and I went, okay, you're brilliant. <laughs> I, I would not have thought about that. But I thought that was kind of interesting that he was able to see that we kind of made the same movie. Mine was called Titanic. His was called The Sweet Hereafter. Mine was a bus crash. His was like a boat full of rich people, poor people, middle class people, and was epic and became the highest grossing film of all time. So, <laughs> and he was, he was Canadian born in Capiscasing, and I was Armenian Canadian born in Cairo 
but we're both Canadian filmmakers and we both happened to be nominated that year, which is kind of a bizarre story, I thought, you know, that there's one year when two Canadian filmmakers are nominated, like they make the same movie, but they really can't be more different. Movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, for what it's worth, I'm awfully grateful that you chose to make Seven Veils the way you did. Because <laughs> the other version, you know, if it didn't occur to you, that's not a bad thing. Um, and, and the other sort of little point I want to make is, I mean, Calendar, it's on Criterion right now. I mean, yeah. it's it's hugely, it's, it might be my favorite, maybe oh, cool. for the reasons that you were talking yeah. about. It's uh, it, it holds up wonderfully. It's terrific. Oh, so. thank, thank you. So, so something that struck me about about Seven Veils and is why why it's actually a, a kind of wonderful conversation point for us here um, is it's it's hugely timely. Um, I mean, it's it's about this question of appropriation. It's about women's stories and about the extent to which women's stories are uh, are kind of bought and sold and 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 um, constrained by other forces and. I don't know how to feel about the film. I mean, my admiration for it is clear, but I, I, I wondered if you could help me to think through um, whether I, I might feel optimistic at the end about the prospects for women being able to develop their stories with a sense of authorship or ownership. Because, I mean, without giving anything away, I mean, the, the protagonist of the film, uh, Janine, um, she makes small changes to to a production. Um, she revises it in ways that are profound uh, and 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 beautiful. But at the same time, she doesn't attend the premiere, and um, you know, so there's some distance there. And and her notes are not appended to the the production. So I, I guess I'd like to know, as a as a viewer, as a woman. Um, what you think, where you think this leaves us in terms of, of the prospects for women um, creatively? Well, I, I think that her decision not to show up at her premiere is because uh, of this idea of being seen, right? She, the film starts off with the idea of her being watched and that that comes with certain uh, fetishization and it comes with a, a certain type of, there's a danger in being watched, as she says. And so I think at that moment, she just doesn't feel she needs to be watched. Yeah. Uh, and especially given the journey she's gone through. Uh, I do believe that, uh, you know, the troubling issue the film does raise is that she still has to be a really good artist so that maybe, uh, you know, the, the, the crisis she's experiencing is that she may not be giving the right direction to get the same intensity that Charles got through whatever means he was using in this different period, and which would be hugely problematic now and not not condoned. But it, in her mind, it might have gotten this performance level that she doesn't feel she's able to match. But these are our, these are questions that you know, like any artist uh, has to deal with, male, female, uh, whatever background they come from. I, I do think she has made this very brave, you know, journey. She is not being protected by anyone, it would mm -hmm. seem. Um, uh, and the only people that, even the person that, you know, has this crush on her, Luke, you know, sort of seeing her through the veil of infatuation, is not really seeing her. And so she's quite isolated. Um, and the fact that she's actually been invited to do this is is also loaded because you know there's an agenda coming from the widow of Charles right uh, and who has her own reasons so 
human beings are super complicated and to be an mm. artist uh, is, is, is very challenging, uh, whoever you are. So I'm not, I think, as I said, that she, her breakthrough act as a director might be what she did within her mother's home, directing that particular scene. Yeah. You know, so uh, that is probably most healing to her. Yeah. I'm not sure if the, the structure of the opera company or, you know, inheriting this other show, uh, even if that show uses aspects of her own history, but as she says, I mean, he's also confabulating and extending and, and, and twisting it out of shape so she can barely recognize it anymore and is trying to reown it. So there's no simple answer to this, yeah. except that I think being an artist is super challenging and that she is making the right choice by, 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 by plunging into it. And uh, that, that, that it's, it's possible that, that uh, I mean, if the question is whether or not she, it's because she doesn't want to take ownership for it, I don't think that that, I think that that's just the result of something else. It's not that she's uh, submitting to his, you know, like male kind of, you know, aura of like general greatness or whatever it might be <laughs> like that. But I, I don't think it's about that. I think it's just a feeling that she has at that moment that she doesn't want to be watched. Yeah. And it's funny when I had her, when I put it into that part of the voiceover, it seemed like too, too direct. Uh, when I actually had her say, I, I didn't, I, I didn't want to be watched anymore, uh, or I didn't be watched at that moment. But that's sort of what, what is, uh, it's not that she's, um, actually, she, she's empowering herself by not making the choice to take that vow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for giving us films that, that lead us somewhere unexpected. Please join me in thanking Adam. Okay, that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>